This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, so welcome to one of our summer specials, a set of podcasts recording in the summer break prior to the 2021-22 season. These podcasts delve deep and deep dive into an individual subject that influences FPL, the idea being to give you listeners a new perspective on the game you'll know and love, and maybe, just maybe, help you with your management for either the upcoming season or whenever you're listening to this, whatever time in the future you're in. Aided and abetted by some brilliant guests, we're hoping they'll be fascinating and rewarding to listen to if you do choose to put us in your ears. We've recorded podcasts on behavioural science, analytics and fandom and FPL for this mini-series. First up is the Behavioural Science Pods. So we are Who Got the Assist. You can find us on Twitter at WGTA underscore FPL, Anthony at FPL Stag, and also on Instagram, WGTA.FPL. Make sure to give us a follow on those channels, subscribe to our podcast and whatever source you use to get your podcast from. And if you enjoyed this or indeed have enjoyed anything we've done over the past five years and haven't gotten around to it yet, please give us a five-star review whenever you listen to these as it's hugely appreciated and helps spread the word of the podcasts. So mentioned it's Behavioural Science Day for the summer specials and we're very happy to be joined by two amazing guests for this one. First is FPL underscore underscore Raptor, otherwise known as Ross, who has burst onto the scene with his behavioural science and psychology insights over last season, a part of the FPL Connect team and with a book uh, which you should all have seen or heard about um, and you definitely will be hearing about on this podcast. Welcome, Ross. Hiya, Tom. Yep. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Obviously, listen to a lot of the stuff you've done previously on psychology or your previous episode with Simon on behavioral science. Read a lot of the articles on psychology. So I suppose you're the founder <laughs> of discussing psychology and behavioral science in the in the community. Sport and exercise psychology is what I lecture in. My PhD is focused on skill acquisition and the use of virtual reality. So slightly more attentional and psychophysiological, moving away from cognitive and social psychology. But my background is very much in just kind of plain basic psychology. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to be on. So thanks for having me. 
Excellent for this podcast then. And also we're joined once again uh, by Simon March, the former winner of FPL and handily a behavioural economics aficionado. Um, you can find him on Twitter at March. Simon, welcome back uh, to the podcast. Simon, great to have you on again. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, lads, it's absolutely great to have you both on. Thanks for joining us, Ross and Simon. It's a pleasure to have you for this summer special. The intersection between behavioural science and FPL, it's something that WGTA has touched on and indeed more than touched on in the past. Uh, primarily, of course, thanks to Tom's experience in that area. But this in-depth focus focus on the topic should be really, really interesting, I think, for FPL managers who think about the game in its wider context. And so I guess making the most of having a guest who has literally wrote the book on this topic, we're going to lean on the structure that Ross uses in his book to break the application of behavioral science to FPL down by periods in and around any given game week. It's a great way for us to effectively touch on the many different ways that psychology plays a role in FPL management. And hopefully I think that everyone who's listening will enjoy it too. So without further ado, I guess, let's get cooking. Yeah, let's get into it. So what is behavioural science? And um, we'll come on to Ross in a second because his background is slightly different. But simply put, behavioural science or behavioural economics takes the underlying principles of how humans behave according to economics and infuses them with a rationality. So trailblazers such as Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, and Richard Taylor, the father of nudge theory you may have heard of, as well as many um, other academics such as Amos Tversky, they basically took issue with the pure economics view of how humans behave. That pure economics view is that humans behave and make decisions in the so-called econ way. That is everything we do, we examine thoroughly, we weigh up all the outcomes and come to the best decision we can through careful analysis of all the evidence available to us to make ourselves the best little economic unit we could possibly be, otherwise known as maximising utility. What behavioralists said was, hey, that's not true. A human brain is an ascended animal one designed for a simpler time when the barrage of messages and decisions we now make on a daily basis simply didn't exist. We're flawed, we're irrational, and as a result of all this information overload, basically, we utilize shortcuts called heuristics and biases to help us navigate a cognitively complex world. We're essentially not Spock-like characters bent on maximizing our own economic output, and there's all kinds of influence in our behaviors. What's important to note here is that behavioral science is actually not one genre of work in of itself, unlike you no know, literature or history or something like that. It's in fact a combination of many complementary ideas and theories from around academia, such as economics, of course, sociology, anthropology, and Ross's bag, psychology. More often than not, Ross, cognitive psychology. Yes, so a brilliant introduction to the behavioural science there. As Tom said, my background is more in psychology as opposed to behavioural science, but they do overlap in, in many ways. I suppose behavioural science is more focused on the decision making with a, with a specific focus on economics. Psychology, very broadly, if you were to give it a very simple definition, would be the study of mind and behaviour. It encompasses many things. It encompasses biological influences, social pressures, environmental factors that all affect how we think and how we act and how we feel. So anything that you're doing throughout your life, psychologists want to know more about. And within psychology, there are multiple facets, multiple subfields, such as biological psychology, cognitive psychology, social psychology. And in my master's and PhD, I'm moving into sports psychology, which attempts to look at the way that sport, sportsmen act, feel, behave. So, um, yeah, I, I guess that's the key distinction between psychology and behavioral science. I, I think you know, one of the questions around behavioral science is it tends to be very interesting to to listen to um, and to read about you recognize a lot in yourself and you start to realize why you do the things that, that you do but I suppose the, the remaining question is is it useful to know this uh, stuff and and one of the uh, quotes um, that I've come across that I think encapsulates this that I really like is by uh, a guy called Rory Sutherland he says that the next revolution will not be technological it will be psychological and I think that, that that's a really interesting perspective on it because 
if you look at how lives and human potential were changed by things like the industrial revolution and the dawn of the internet these things are still going to develop technology is still going to become more important and, uh, and more efficient but what behavioral science recognizes is that there's a, a lot of potential uh, within humankind that is not currently being fulfilled and in fact a lot of the things that we've evolved over you know thousands of years are currently uh, sabotaging our, our potential. So what behavioral science tries to do is, is identify where we are sabotaging ourselves and opportunities and methods by which uh, we can uh, improve and multiply our impact. Realistically, you can't expect a, a human to, even when they're aware of these biases and their effects, you can't really expect a human to compensate and to manage those things and you know recognize that they're being you know, biased and making the right decision. I mean, the guys on, the, on this pod, yeah, we probably read or thought about this about as much as, as anybody. And you now speaking for myself, at, at least, I, I know that I still make these mistakes and, and I can um, recognize them when I do them, but I still make them. And I probably still will continue to make them because, you know, that's just what it means to be uh, human. If you want to encapsulate it, it, it's just a way of helping you get out of your own way and, uh, you know, and fulfill your potential. Absolutely. And I think we're beginning to get into the whole kind of fancy football realm there um, in terms of making mistakes and continuing to make them. So let's get into the main body of it. And I guess, as Anthony mentioned earlier, and in Ross's book, the structure really is about a game week in the season. So, you know, not game week one, not game week 38, or not like a special other sort of game week, like a double game week, but a regular game week. Let's call this game week 13 shall we an innocuous game week but everyone's going to forget you know an ordinary week as far as things can be so what we're going to do is structure this podcast around the game week in the season just to make it easier and keep us tight and focused we can as i mentioned go into the weeds of stuff like the psychology of chip strategy but that's coverable in ross's book and in interest of not doing a free to four hour podcast i think we'll try to make it as typical a week as possible as i said so that game week 13 is what we're going to go for we're going to split this into four phases which is early in the week so when you're doing your research you know a little bit out from deadline later in the week when you're making your final decisions about to press confirm on those transfers and proclaim i'm locked in in play and after the game week um so you know post hoc thoughts and some ways to deal with a bad game week too we're going to talk through a few of the key heuristics and biases that can impact managers at each stage of this game week. But there is one overarching caveat to all of this. You know how much I love a caveat. But I'm going to leave it to somebody else to deliver it because linking into what Simon said there about even though you identify these, you still make mistakes. There's one big one here, which Ross really nicely puts in his book, which is bias, blind spot. Um, Ross, would you want to just explain that? Because I love it. It's the most meta point ever, isn't it, when we're doing a podcast like this? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's, it's quite humorous. It's sort of a nice soft way to start the pod, to start the book. And so bias blind spot essentially is the idea that we can recognize the impact of biases in the judgment of other people. So you can point to someone on Twitter and go, ha, they're demonstrating confirmation bias. But you really struggle to recognize the same bias in yourself. So there's a nice quote from Prolin, Lynn and Ross. They discuss it as an asymmetry in perceived susceptibility to biases. So there's, there's this asymmetry between what you can recognize in yourself and what you can recognize in others. So essentially, we are blind to our own biases. And it's a very nice point to consider as we'll be going through this pod, because I think we'll mention probably 10, 15 different biases, potentially even more. And you may be thinking to yourself as you're listening to this, well, no, that's not me. I don't suffer from that cognitive bias. Other people do, but I don't. <laughs> and if you are thinking that to yourself, I'd modestly suggest that maybe you're suffering from the bias blind spot. So it's something nice to keep in mind as you're listening. 
You make the point really well, actually, in the book, and this just really ties it off nicely, that most people think they're better than average at stuff. And that just kind of sums it up nicely. It's, you know, not everyone is better than average at whatever it might be. It's called illusory superiority. We have this illusion that we are superior to other people. And I mean, some of us will be. And uh, I'm sure we'd like to think that we are superior at certain things throughout the FPL season and um, with respect to our our own domains, um, especially psychology for me. I'd like to have that illusion of superiority. But we do need to consider that sometimes we're not as superior as we may think. Essentially, we're all human here. And I don't think any of us propagate immune to falling prey from the things we're going to be speaking about. It's easy to think we may think we are because we're describing them and talking about them. Um, but that's really not the case. So bias blind spot is a great thing to throw off the top. So let's set the scene. It's early in the week with last game week's outcome still high in mind. And you know, you've got a bit of time, barring if you've made any raise transfers, of course, instead of your next move and decisions. As I said, it's a bit of an innocuous sort of game week 13. There's nothing out of the ordinary as far as things can be these days, of course. And FPL-wise, you're probably doing things like listening to podcasts, reading articles, maybe maybe match reports as well, summarising the weekend just gone, tweeting, reading tweet threads, having discussions on Twitter, or chatting to your mates on the WhatsApp group, something like that, about the week that was. So at this point in the game week sort of cycle, I guess there are a few sort of overpowering sort of things which do kind of creep in. Um, The first one I think is pretty well known, nonetheless worth discussing, which is that fantastic idea of herd mentality. I've mentioned this quite a few times in the past in this podcast, um, but it is the idea of the twin impulse of greed and fear from an evolutionary standpoint. Uh, Imagine you're a cave person and food's been brought back to your cave. Um, Those kind of two impulses kick in for you greed you know you want to keep yourself strong and be able to pass your genes on to the next generation and equally fear you need to eat to survive and not be weakened and fpl points work in exactly the same way so you want the points that others are scoring for yourself of course to be in a stronger position and you don't want to lose out and lose rank if we're not getting those points uh, Solomon Ash in 1995 um, in the conformity experiment actually proved the existence of herd mentality. In this experiment, a group of people were all told to give the wrong answer to a very basic question, except one person who wasn't in on the experiment, not a confederate, as they delightfully put it. Um, and that person was asked last. All these questions were really, really basic. Or stuff like, it's all American. So what is the capital of the USA? You know, that sort of level of question. You'd expect the last person to be thinking, no, you know what, something's wrong here. But almost every time Ash found that the last person, they always gave the same, they're in the wrong answer as their peers gave. And there's kind of, you know, the influence of peer pressure, information, and it also kind of speaks to the core of how things like fake news can spread. If misinformation is believed by everyone around you, you are likely to, to believe it yourself. And we're exposed to the herd in many ways. Ownership, especially effective ownership, which has become huge over the last kind of couple of seasons, the transfer market, you see what everyone else is doing, captain polls, and obviously Twitter content, articles, podcasts, recommending certain players or teams. So a whole gamut of herd mentality stuff going on isn't there Ross and I mean it is it is something you can kind of sit back and kind of watch Twitter from an ethnographic perspective and just observe it sort of happening it really is fascinating isn't it absolutely and and the generation we're in social media has just amplified everything all of these incredible psychological concepts and behavioral science concepts we'll be talking about today obviously when they came into prevalence social media wasn't anything like it was now and so we almost need to do all of our research again now through social media. And I mean, you can think of it in a, as like a simile where sort of your thoughts are your phone and you plug that in for an ops lead and then social media is the speaker and it amplifies everything. It makes everything more intense. So I think as you're on social media 
as I know Tom likes to do and I like to do, and I'm sure Simon does as well, is take a step back and just have a look at the sort of processes that you might see on social media. And you can see that the sort of things that you would see in everyday life are amplified even further. And herd mentality in particular, because it's the idea that we don't want to disrupt harmony within the group, the community is an incredible place and we do act like a community. And sometimes randomly calling someone out for an opinion or a competency choice or a transfer would disrupt that harmony and as such that's why we like to take a step back and avoid disrupting the harmony but in doing so we're not suggesting log logical alternatives and we're not challenging the status quo so i think i'd recommend if possible do challenge do recommend other alternatives do try and spark up that discussion obviously do so in a very polite way and don't don't cause unnecessary aggro but yeah <laughs> do, do do try to challenge it and don't just take a step back and think well if everyone's doing it, all these top managers are making the same decision then then surely i should do the same thing because if we don't come up with these alternatives then we're just going to all be suffering from from herd mentality Certainly. I mean, Anthony, you're always famously going against the grain when it comes to things like chip strategy and things like that. It's fair to say that you and Nick um, both spend less time on social media than I do. I mean, do, do you find that that kind of insulates you to some extent from herd mentality? Like, do I say things on this podcast that you kind of think, God, that's just Twitter rubbish, isn't it? So there have certainly been times where I was maybe not quite as active as you on Twitter, but a lot more active than I am now. And I think I definitely found that the herd mentality got to me then. And I think that is something that is uh, touched upon with the idea of her mentality, that it often can, it can be amplified by social interactions or by social media, I guess, as the arch social interaction of the modern age. And I found that for sure. And sometimes you come out with things on the pod and I'm thinking, no, no, that's, that's definitely taken off on Twitter this week. Like, why are we <laughs> talking about captaining Raheem Sterling? Like, he hasn't been good in a year. <laughs> and that's the, the sort of thing that does come out. So, yeah, I, I definitely do see that her mentality coming through. And I do think that social interactions play a huge, huge part in it. With respect to the community, I mean, it's, it's taking on a new dimension with Twitter and um, becoming more popular uh, with FPL. But I, I mean, yeah, for a really long time, I always thought that for all the tools that are available to help FPL managers, the, the best tool is uh, still the FPL community. And to some extent, I still believe that. But then there's another part of me that actually thinks it's also just the absolute worst tool uh, possible. And um, that there is a wisdom of crowds and things like the captaincy poll, which which obviously brings together um, and uh, and kind of weaponizes groupthink a, a, a bit, uh, you know, can often have a very uh, positive effect. Um, and and it, it is just useful, um, you know, quite quite apart from the fact that it, you know it's quite a nice social thing to do most of the time. Um, it, it is useful to be able to you know have your ideas sense checked by by people, you know. But I, I mean, one thing I, I I don't know about the guy who won it this year, but before this year, you know, one thing that really stood out to me was that nobody who had ever won FPL um, had done so whilst being active on Twitter. And you know, maybe that's a correlation more than a, a causation, but I, I could definitely see with, you know, with respect to the, the power of groupthink and social norms to take you off in some, some really weird directions. Uh, I'm not surprised that somebody who insulates themselves from, from that kind of thing uh, can really benefit from it. I mean, you do see some real nonsense and it doesn't always appear like nonsense at, at, at the time, but you see how quickly it can take off. That suddenly a player who there's no actual real rational basis for it or logical basis uh, for it of being a good pick. 
Yes. You know, I a mean, couple of people start to you know talk about them, and then suddenly, before you know it, they're an absolute must-have, and they're the most transferred-in player. I'm seeing the spectre of Shane Duffy <laughs> appearing over a hill, and, and us all slapping the armband on the strapping Irishman's upper arm. And I know exactly what you mean, Simon, and it definitely can warp your perception. I think I think there's been numerous sort of semi-mathematical studies which are showing that it's like FPL just like one percent of the population or something like that of playing FPL, and obviously, obviously, like a good proportion of the top, the top one percent is going to be within that sort of sphere. But nonetheless, it's definitely a really interesting area, and it can definitely kind of shape and bend your perceptions away from kind of what the best call is towards what the common sort of grain is and i think that kind of nicely links actually to the common knowledge effect as well so this kind of main thing of game of thrones you know it is known this is really powerful actually because it can lead to you similar to her mentality in the group thing just accepting something as a gospel truth without actually looking into it yourself because you just hear sort of things all the time where people say no this has happened so many times in the past it's definitely true it's going to happen again and that also links to quite a few other things which we've got later on where this guy is the obvious captain and that kind of ends the debate the game week against Bournemouth and Cardiff is a perfect time to captain a Brighton defender is the (laughs) yeah and you know there's definitely like um, you know a whole world of things there that we can speak about for example jobs to be done theory which states that outsourcing the task of thinking to other people is what's happened here but yeah I mean common knowledge for us that's an interesting one especially when sort of contrasted with another thing that you can observe which is group polarization yeah common knowledge is interesting because it's the idea that we all share a certain amount of knowledge. Perhaps the FPL community will have 70%, 80% of the same knowledge, and we all discuss that knowledge quite a lot. It links to group thinking because we want to kind of maintain that harmony. We don't want to bring in logical alternatives, and we don't want to discuss these additions that might actually bring something new to the table. So the common knowledge effect is the fact that we just basically on Twitter will all discuss the same things that we already know and that we won't bring these new exciting things to the table. Um, It does need quite nicely onto group polarisation, Group polarisation isn't focused on the actual content of the decision of the community. It's more focused on how extreme the decision will be. So focus on the word polarisation. When we discuss things in groups and specifically on social media, we tend to polarise towards the more extreme. So you can imagine in FPL, we're all discussing captain in a differential at the start of the week, maybe someone that's 15% owned. We start having these discussions and the more we discuss it on social media, the more likely it goes from being, oh, we we could possibly captain this deferential to it's the obvious choice and it becomes more and more extreme. (laughs) And it's not necessarily just going from, oh, it could be an option to it's the obvious option. It can then even go further and you can think, is there someone that's even more of a differential? So group polarization, you need to be very careful. The more you discuss things, and I'm I'm thinking about Hindu monkey and he's um, Che Adams train and the (laughs) the idea of this train coming through. And the idea of a train and a bandwagon is that we start off with a very, very basic idea and a very, very small minority influence, small concept. And the more we discuss it in the community, the more extreme it becomes until it becomes the obvious choice. And that's when out of nowhere, you just get a player that doesn't look like they've got a great fixture with not very good underlying stats being captained by 50% of the top 10K. So it's definitely an interesting concept. Yeah, the the group polarization idea actually kind of it chimed in with kind of maybe discussions of politics in the last few years and the idea of, you know, silos, people who are in a bubble in social media that tends to drive them towards quite extreme ideas over time. And it's we can see the same thing happen in FPL. And so that that Overton window shifts as to what is, you know, a viable or feasible strategy. And we start to see people then discussing, OK, Man City have a good fixture and it goes from just Captain De Bruyne to Captain Sterling to what about Cancelo or Stones or Diaz or even Ederson because you know maybe they'll get a penalty against them and he'll save it of course you know this sort of like daft stuff does start to happen we see it all the time 
you know, an esoteric pick will come out. And you know, I've all praised this fairly often, as I'm sure you all uh, recount from various podcasts over the last four or five years, where there has been an obvious pick, a less obvious pick, and a ridiculously unobvious pick. And guess what I've done? I've gone for the 1% player who shows up for 20 minutes, something like that. And I think, Simon, this kind of links in nicely to what you were saying earlier on, doesn't it, about kind of the nature of FPL Twitter and kind of how herd mentality, common knowledge and group polarization could all have different sort of distortion effects on your own sense of thinking. I, I like what you said about the, uh, the winners. Yeah, when this happens, when, when you get these, these kind of mini bubbles uh, in, in FPL um, and a whole bunch of people go in a certain direction, um, and if you can spot it, if you can tell that they're, you know, they're on a hide into nothing um, and you can avoid that, that's actually differential in itself. Um, and I always thought about, you know, looking back on the season that, that I uh, won it, one thing that struck me was that I don't remember really picking any anybody that you would describe as a major differential. Um, I, you know, I, I felt that most of the players that I picked were, were fairly sensible. But what I realised um, looking back on it is that what I managed to do it was avoid a lot of these um, bandwagons uh, that you know that ended up getting derailed very quickly, um, and that that was really enough. Um, that that ended up being the difference between you know, my season and um, you know and somebody who, who didn't do quite as well uh, that year. Um, so it's not always necessarily a case of you know finding um, this diamond in the rough, uh, you know this real differential. It, it's it's some of the time it's just about not getting sucked into these bandwagons um, that, you know, drag you in a, in a negative direction. All right, let's move on a little bit then uh, to anchoring. Anchoring is basically the idea that the first thing you see plays an outsized role in your perceptions as that's the yardstick you compare everything else with. To give you an example, from the retail world, uh, there was a famous ploy from the noughties where say you were going to buy a TV and you went to an electronics store. Often the one they want to shift, the mid-price TV, would, the, would be the very first thing that they place in the store. And um, so, you know, you'd see it, you'd see the price, you'd see what it did and all that sort of thing. It would be kind of mid-price. So you'd walk around the store and you'd see cheaper ones, more expensive ones. And what people always do is they land on the middle one because they've anchored their perception of what a price of a TV should be based on the first thing that they saw. And from the off-ross, there's loads of ways that this impacts FPL managers, aren't there? Absolutely. And I think content creators could actually use this to make their podcasts and to make their articles and to make their threads more appealing to the masses, the order of, in which we receive information. The, the podcasts that tend to drop on a Monday or a Tuesday, the things that the first things you'll see, they're the pieces of information that you remember throughout the week. And as you're going through the transfers and someone suggests potentially something on a Thursday, you see a Twitter thread that's and you think, oh, but I remember on the podcast on the Monday, someone suggested something else and it was actually a really good idea. So I think I'll stick to that. And the issue with, we've got with anchoring bias is it's very difficult to differentiate between anchoring bias and gut feeling because we say, I've got this gut feeling at the start of the week. I've got a gut feeling that I'm going to captain Marcus Rashford because I think it's going to explode this weekend. It's very difficult to try and understand, are you sticking to your gut feeling by captaining Marcus Rashford or are you experiencing anchoring bias? And even more than that, there's another bias called plan continuation bias, which is the idea that we just continue with a plan because it was the original plan, even though more logical alternatives are coming up. So you've got all these things coming up in your mind. You, you have your plan at the beginning of the week and you've got to try and decide as an FPL manager, what bias are you experiencing? Or are you just sticking to your plan like you should be? Are you just trusting your gut feeling? And obviously for us guys that know these biases, these are the sort of things that are going through our mind every week. But 
there's not a, a sort of one size fits all answer. It changes each week, but you do need to consider whether the plan that you had at the start of the week is what is influenced in your eventual plan that you come to decide at the end of the week. No, absolutely. I mean, we'll definitely get on to um, your gut later on. That's a huge part, obviously, of how this all fits together. With respect to anchoring, just an, another side of it that I think manifests itself in FPL uh, is in how we determine uh, the value of something. There's, we tend to do it on a very sort of relative uh, but somewhat arbitrary basis. Um, and an example from my own life at the moment is that I'm, I'm currently buying a house. And if, if you've ever bought a house, you, you realise that because you're spending a lot of money on one thing, that suddenly other things that you would have thought were really expensive, like lawyers' fees and survey costs and, and things like this, um, suddenly you're just you know, writing these checks. Yeah, uh, I've, I've, just, I've just moved. I feel that exact, <laughs> exact pain. Yeah, and, and not even thinking about it. Um, and, and, and that's because you're, you're kind of anchored on, on, the, um, you know, on the big number, which is the house. And, and I see this in, uh, in FPL quite, quite a lot. Uh, in how we determine you know, whether a player is overpriced or not. I remember back in um, after Harry Kane's uh, first season, I think he was something like 4.5, something ridiculous in his first season. Um, so he's an incredible value. And in his next se- season, uh, he went up to 9 million. And I, I distinctly remember a lot of conversation uh, around that as to whether he was worth it at, at 9 million. And obviously, he, he, yeah, he proved that he was, but he was even worth it the season before. Um, but because people had got used to the idea of Harry Kane being a 4.5 player, it was very difficult for them to then shift their minds to, to accept him as a, as a 9 million player. Uh, and, it, you know, we see it in how we, we assess uh, you know, performance in terms of goal scoring. You know, if a player scored 30 goals one season, 20 goals the next season, you know, we start to think that, that you know, they're on the decline. But actually, you know, 20 goals independently is a fantastic return. Um, so I, I think, you know, there, there are a lot of ways in which um, anchoring seems to, uh, seems to affect us. Absolutely. I mean, Anthony, this is definitely something that you know, I'll, I'll see from you that you'll kind of say one thing at the start of the week and you, you appear to be very good at, by the end of the week, changing your mind completely and going something completely off the wall when you post your team in our Slack at five minutes to, to, before the deadline. Um, I mean, do you recognise anchoring bias as much as, uh, as someone who's not as into it as we are? Like, is it something that you recognise? Yeah, I've done one module on behavioral economics in college. I'm an expert, man. No, I have a clue. So no, I just uh, play along as I go, I guess. And I think maybe it's just the idea that I tend to make my decisions on Thursdays and Fridays in FPL. And I happily do research for the podcast on a Sunday or a Monday or a Tuesday, whatever day it might be. But I don't really have a plan. And then, you know, the end of the podcast comes and you're like, Anthony, and what's your plan? And I'm like, I'll just make up something. (laughs) Sometimes is the position where I'm in. Or sometimes I can kind of see what looks logical at that point. But I want to see some Champions League games or something to really know what I feel like I'm actually going to do when the week comes on. So I, I think for me, it's more that there isn't a plan to continue. And like, whilst I might have set out a bus team, that isn't the plan. And so I don't get too anchored into a thought. I, I think, though, maybe what does happen to me is more, and might as well toss in one of the other biases that we've come across, and that's that Semmelweis, which is, you know, it's like that conservatism bias, but it's more that it's that tendency to project new information that contradicts something that I've already come in to believe or that I've taken in before. And that might have been something that I've taken in over you know, the course of a season. 
So um, Semmelweis reflex is what this is called. Um, and the story behind this is uh, Ignaz Semmelweis, who was a Hungarian physician who gives his name to this particular psychological foible. The story goes in the 19th century, Semmelweis realised that child mortality rates in the hospital he worked at dramatically fell if fellow doctors washed their hands in chlorine disinfectant before going to see the mothers um, of, the, of the children. And it sounds incredible today, but in those times, doctors thought nothing of not washing their hands between doing an autopsy and seeing an expectant mother. Anyway, uh, Semmelweis tried to tell them they had to kind of change their ways. They had to kind of adapt because it wasn't working. But the reaction of the doctors was predictably resistant. They believed, for example, gentlemen could not pass on illnesses. The idea behind this is obviously sticking to what we know. Uh, this can be either a blessing or a curse. Sometimes it is a bit of a curse. So, you know, you, it can mean you're a bit slow to accept changes in the game or in a player. See the likes of Patrick Bamford, Danny Ings or Jay Lings. You know, people, including us, have written off these guys have busted flushes from what we knew. And we weren't able to jump on the bandwagon as, as quick as we otherwise could have been. Like last season, the classic example for me would have been that I had kind of decided that San was overperforming. And I just continued to project over and over again that he was outperforming his XG. It was just something that I could not possibly internalize. And I think that's more the sort of thing that, you know, affects me as opposed to being anchored to one plan. But I can totally understand how people can be anchored to, you know, big spreadsheet plans that they put together over the course of like three weeks with all these fixtures put in and that they want to stick with just because maybe they put the effort into making the spreadsheet or because the plan seemed so great at the start, they settled on it and now they can't escape it. We're going to have to throw in sunk cost fallacy here, I think. I think we were getting too close to it, so I'm going to have to do it. Mm. But basically, it's basically all these things. So the concept that you invest a certain amount of resource into something, which means you don't want to give up on it too easily, which is exactly that. There are essentially costs that can't be recovered, be they time, money, whatever, um, hence sunk costs. And there's a great study by Arks and Bloomer who demonstrated sunk cost fallacy in the 1980s with their famous ski trip example. Ross, you mentioned it in your book as well. Um, subjects were asked to imagine they had basically spent $100 of the ski trip to one resort, but they're off on a better trip elsewhere for $50 and booked that too. They're asked what they do if the timings clash. Neither were refundable. Which one would they go on? They all basically chose the more expensive trip. It wasn't as good, but the loss seemed greater. They didn't want to lose that sunk cost. And we see it all the time in FPL. The depth of my research shows this. I'm taking a strong position on social media, so I need to kind of follow that through. Remember in that group polarization effect we just spoke about. Or even idiots uttering on podcasts a very strong position that they feel like they need to then back up and double down on in public often to their own detriment because an optimal solution presents itself, which is much more obvious things, you know, that probably weren't the best things to do. But because you basically made, dug a hole for yourself effectively or put loads of time into presenting a case something, you feel like you've got to go through with it. This really demonstrates itself in the real world. You know, one of the things that uh, some cost fallacy causes us to do is, is throw good money after bad. Yeah, you know, that we we double down on it. It's, it's something that gamblers experience. If you're down, then you might as well yeah you know, keep on going down. You know, rather than acknowledge the amount that you've lost and and cut your losses, uh, you end up just you know losing more most of the time in, in an attempt to uh, to win it back. And I think that we see that a lot in uh, FPL, particularly with hit taking. You take a certain uh, number of hits to get your team looking uh, a, a certain way, and then suddenly it becomes quite permissive. Uh, they sometimes call it the cascade effect. You know, once you've started to, to do something or, or once you've invested or you feel like you've invested something in it, then suddenly um, you become much more inclined to keep throwing points at it. 
um, or yeah, in this case, throwing points at it or throwing money uh, at it in in the real world. You know, that is definitely a, an element that manifests itself within uh, FPL. In, in in terms of what you can do about it, it's very difficult because it's so natural. But I I think being aware of it is a key thing, and and sometimes sort of structuring yourself. So I mean, I use the example of, uh, of taking hits. One form of structure that you could do to, to help um, manage that and to help regulate it would be to say, okay, I'm only going to take four hits this season. And even if you end up taking, you know, 20 hits, uh, it, it's still the case that every time that you do that, you'll be very conscious of, of doing it and you'll be less sort of blasé about it, less, you know, what the hell I've taken one, so I might as well take uh, take some more. So I just think that giving yourself that that extra uh, reason to think about it it can be really beneficial in in managing that particular fallacy another piece of advice just to top that off for this whole section is just to be a dynamic and adaptive manager and i think all of these plan continuation bias gut feeling anchoring bias if you're willing to be dynamic throughout the week and, and as simon said you try and your best to acknowledge that you are you can be prone to these biases okay try to avoid the bias blind spot if you do realize that throughout the week and you try your best to be dynamic and adaptive, you are more likely to be able to, to notice these biases and to stop yourself from falling victim to them. So I suppose as a mantra throughout your game week, especially in the early stages as you're doing your research, just try and think to yourself, I'm going to be as adaptive and dynamic as possible. And I'm going to be willing to respond to new information, but not necessarily so willing that I'm going to throw out the pieces of information that I've learned earlier in the week. Right. So, yeah, really interesting discussion overall there, I think, of just after the game, which finished in that sort of early stage of the next game week, this kind of game week 13, the pre-game week sort of time. I mean, which one of the myriad of things we've already discussed, guys, do you think are the biggest influences out there? I think common knowledge effect is increasingly growing in impact just because of the situation we've all found ourselves in recently. I think that there's been so many people who are part of FPL now you know whether they're active on Twitter or not who are kind of involved reading articles you know listening to podcasts the growth of people who are kind of shadow boxing as it were using uh, you know the templates of teams from the likes of FPL general and so on and so forth to outsource their decisions to those guys and to kind of use that as a template for what they should be doing and I think that creates kind of a critical mass as Anthony and I mentioned in the final podcast of last season with things like effective ownership um, which increasingly makes a maverick move more and more difficult or at least incredibly scary to do. Simon which one do you reckon it is for you? Groupthink, social norms, um, yeah, FOMO or fear of missing out uh, you know this is something that can be directly related uh, to what you see on things like uh, social media. Uh, and the more you see it, the more difficult it is to uh, to resist that. And, you know, we, we've seen it throughout history. I mean, you know, things like tulip mania and subprime mortgages and beanie babies and meme stocks, maybe Bitcoin, uh, you know, Thea Walcott, all, all, all <laughs> these things over time have all been things that you know started off as conversations online and ended up being you know massive bubbles massive bandwagons and they wouldn't keep happening if they were easy to avoid uh, and and yeah i think that when we talk about groupthink and social norms and uh, and fear of missing out this is the root of those things i guess taking a, a slightly more kind of just amateur man on the fence just taking all this in and maybe trying to apply it to the fpl twitter community maybe on the fly more I, I do think we definitely obviously see groupthink at play. And this is something we talk about on the pod quite frequently and that people are being herded towards decisions. And part of that as well is, as Tom said, about the common knowledge effect that people are copying teams. But I think 
something like polls, for example, which point people towards who to captain, I think do that in a much more you know minute way compared to people actually copying teams you know, writ large across a whole season. But then maybe when we look at content producers on Twitter, we definitely see polarization becoming a thing that people are almost using the fact that it's possible to suggest mad things and actually be seen as a bit of a maverick and perhaps somebody who takes risks and does well and play on that shock value to kind of grow themselves. And I think that's definitely something we see on Twitter more and more. And maybe there's an aspect of that Semmelweis reflex as well coming into things. And I know I'm just like, I'm hitting on most of the ones that we talked about now, but people rejecting new information. And the reason why I think sometimes people are rejecting new information that comes in, which contradicts their original view, is that they feel like their personal worth is tied up in the team that they have already or the transfers that they've made already, or in the case of contributors, the calls that they've made on a podcast or in an article before or earlier in the season that they say must keep going. So the, I guess I would point to all three, but I think groupthink is by far and away the one that's driving the ship. In, in my opinion, the two that stand out for me in my own behaviours and the stuff that I see on social media is probably a combination of plan continuation bias and assemble vice reflex. It's the idea that we have this plan at the beginning of the week or the beginning of the month. We do all this research, sunk cost fallacy, we invest in that, and then we reject the new information that disagrees with our plan. So it's a combination of plan continuation bias, Semmelweis reflex, and sunk cost fallacy. I would say those three. And the best way to, to counter that is, to, as I said before, just try and be as dynamic and adaptive as possible as an FPL manager. Really, really good advice. I think that's probably the main outtake from me uh, from, from doing this, from what Simon said and what Ross has said, is that just trying to make sure that you don't get settled on an idea too quickly, trying to make sure that you don't fall prey to these sorts of things as far as you possibly can, bias blind spot in mind is probably the way to go in the early stage of the game week. We're going to have a break now. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about you know, later on in the game week, crunch time. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? So we're back and it's still game week 13. But we've come away from, say, Monday to Wednesday, where we're digesting what happened and so on. And, you know, we're making up our own decisions. We're thinking about who we're going to be captioning. We're getting close to pressing confirm on that all-important transfer in. And there's lots of different things which sort of um, come into play here. One of the ones that I really want to throw in before we do anything is the importance of framing, which is kind of using stats, misusing stats or other kind of relevant data to frame your argument. Ross does a great example of this in his book. And I did the same a while back when I did a psychology corner on this. But it's a really kind of pertinent thing to bear in mind when you look at any data which presents as an argument for why a player is worth buying or captioning. Here's a conundrum listeners can definitely all guess the answer to. I'm going to tell you about two players now. Uh, So player one, last season, this player had a great campaign. He scored 15 goals, nabbed 14 assists, showing his centrality to the team. He played 31.5 games worth of time and managed a massive 187 points, meaning a hugely impressive points per game of 5.9. Impressively, he scored 15 goals from just 38 shots on target, showing his predatory nature in front of goal. He was also a creative player this year, a new string to his bow, forcing assists from nine big chances created, and next A of seven was just fantastic. He's a must-own next season. In contrast, player two, last season was inconsistent and simply unreliable, you know. He scored eight less goals last year than the year before and his points total dropped off markedly from 2019-20 when he scored 23 points more than did this year. So a decrease of 10%. He was profligate in front of goal as well, you know. He was missing over half his big chances, overperforming his XG by a large margin, 
More than half of his goals also came from the penalty spot this year. Eight of his goals. Over the last 12 game weeks of the 2021 season, he blanked in nine of those games, showing his unreliability. And he was often left second fiddle as a new strike partner seems to take the limelight. He's definitely one to avoid next season as he's overperforming and simply can't keep this up. Both those players are Jamie Vardy. So it's just a way of kind of encapsulating how you can frame data to put your argument forward. And I think, Ross, this is one you touched on in your book, but a really nice way to kick off this sort of discussion of when you get to crunch time, how you make your decisions can definitely be kind of framed by the data you read and the spin you put on it to suit your arguments. Absolutely. And I love that example of using the same player because it's the same stats. And it's such an interesting conversation because a lot of people will see these biases that we're discussing today and they'll say, well, probably the best way to do it is just to avoid that subjectivity and to just go for objective stats instead. Well, I'll just look at underlying stats because they're objective and they paint the picture. But of course, whilst the stats are objective, it's all about your subjective interpretation of the stats because stats by themselves do nothing. We have to then interpret them and then make the choice on which player we want to transfer into captain. So it's that subjective interpretation, which once again, then turns the stats into something that isn't objective. So um, something very, very worthwhile looking at, and we're going to come on to some, some other biases here as well. Just worth noting that while stats are objective, we do interpret them in a very subjective manner. Yeah, so researcher bias, I think, is another kind of way of putting that. Um, I think you mentioned that in your book as well, Ross. You know, like obviously, you know, the eye test is something that's held up as being very subjective. And as you kind of say, the stats are kind of often said, you know, these are objective put on the pedestal in that way. But the way in which you approach the problem still skews the data in a certain way. And it's also interesting to see if this extends to the academic world, for example. So Josh Miller's recent work on hot hand fallacy, which probably won't speak about here, but uh, Simon spoke about on the last podcast we did in terms of behavioral science. Um, but he recently looked at other work uh, by Amos Tversky back in the day and found elements of researcher bias in how they presented their data to disprove the fact that hot hand validity existed. Uh, so it is definitely one of those things which does permeate all aspects of how you interpret data. Moving on to a couple of kind of well wrought areas in terms of deciding what research matters to you. Confirmation bias is a big one that everybody kind of knows about, is referenced by all manner of individuals, be they content providers or, you know, just uh, FPL accounts. This is a phenomenon of when you're doing your research to home in on and overvalue information, which backs up your point of view. And also you block out or discard information, which runs the contrary, linking with anchoring, things like that. But the effect is that you see stuff online and you're focusing on RMTs with your player in them. And you kind of tend to favour those arguments which are framed to back your point of view up. And this also links to something called belief bias, you know, judging the strength of an argument based on how well its conclusion is argued versus how well the app's data supports said argument. And uh, Anthony, we see this a lot, don't we? And I think that we probably are guilty on the podcast of uh, indulging in this because we are kind of you know, looking for a bit of an angle on how we present things. And often we can fall prey to this and next week just be like, oh God, I can't believe we said that guy looks good. Oh, wow. And that definitely links into other things that we've spoken about in the previous episodes, you know, things like common knowledge or um, the mentality in the group thing. It is an interesting one, Tom. And I've been thinking about it a little bit because you could argue we're succumbing to confirmation bias and just seeking out the information that backs up our view or backs up the point that we want to make on the podcast about a player, which isn't necessarily the same thing as our view. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we're trying to provide a devil's advocate opinion on the other side to, you know, I know how you're going to go on a player, Tom. So sometimes I'll give the devil's advocate opinion to make sure that the listener hears both sides. But you do find that um, 
unless you've got that dynamic where you've got a devil's advocate approach, it's sometimes very, very hard to swim through all the data by yourself. And I think this is definitely a thing which affects threads on Twitter more than anything, where often, you know, because there is that small area uh, or small number of words to get through a point, you often find that really only one position can be put forward on a given comparison of players, uh, which isn't necessarily helpful. And sometimes because if you say, you know, in the last six game weeks, he's always scored away from home. But if it turns out that there was only one game away from home, but it isn't very easy to see that in a Twitter thread, you know, you just take this like stat taken as it was and you think, oh, wow, this guy's great away from home. I should definitely captain him. And then it turns out that that might not necessarily have anywhere near the same value that it should have. And is is that confirmation bias? Is that someone just maybe not doing their homework? Or is that at the end of the day, the person is taking, you know, taking that information, me in this example, not doing the research for myself and falling prey to someone else's confirmation bias? Yeah, outsourcing that kind of, that kind of thinking to somebody else. I mean, Ross, what, what do you reckon here? You, you put a few really nice little vignettes about this in your book. I mean, what, what's the uh, the view uh, from a learned opinion? I, I find it very interesting. And and I like that Anthony's touched on Twitter threads there because Twitter threads, you can often combine confirmation bias and belief bias because I would be lying if I, if I say that I don't often skip toward the end of a thread, read the conclusion. And if the, conclu- <laughs> if the conclusion is something that I want, if the conclusion is that I should captain Bruno Fernandes, I want to captain Bruno Fernandes, I'll go through and read the thread. If the bottom, the conclusion says don't captain Bruno, I'll go, well, that's a stupid thread and I'll scroll past that. And there you've got belief bias at the start and then you've got confirmation bias because you're like, oh, if they've said captain Bruno, I want some evidence that it is indeed the correct choice. This is one of the more difficult, I mean, Simon's touched on it throughout how difficult it is to spot these biases in ourselves. And, and if it was easy, then we wouldn't be having this conversation right now because everyone would be able to avoid them. This is one that you just have to do your best to try and be aware of. I urge everyone to try not to skip towards the end of a thread or an article or a podcast and listen to the conclusion. Try and listen to the main body or read the main body and form your own conclusion. Because sometimes you'll read the body of an argument, you'll form a conclusion, and then you'll read the, the conclusion and you'll say, well, that conclusion doesn't match the stats at all. <laughs> and, and, and then I think that's the best way to do it is to, is to look at it in that fashion. Absolutely. I, I think also there's links to something called the, the clustering illusion, um, which uh, as a quant train guy, it often pains me. But I'm far too nice to point it out how poor some analysis I see is. And there's often a reliance on a tiny sample set of data to prove a, you know, a very individualized point. You're backing a player on your team or a player that you've bought. You know, Anthony's mentioned a couple of these stuff like uh, last year. I think you said in your book, Ross, um, Jack Grealish every three weeks has a double digit haul. That's a great example of that, where people kind of look at a set of random data and basically try to transpose on that a sense of non-randomness. They think there is a trend, there's a pattern there. But in fact, that doesn't really exist, does it? And, and I think that that's definitely one of those things which um, we see a lot uh, in those sort of Twitter threads. Yeah, and Simon wrote a fantastic article. I mean, he can speak about it himself on the correlation causation fallacy, and it links in perfectly there. We see these clustering illusions, we see stats, and we try to impose some sort of meaning to them. And sometimes it's just a correlation. Sometimes these two events just occur side by side. It doesn't necessarily mean that every time Jack Grealish plays his third match, he's going to get a double-digit <laughs> ball. It just means it just so happens there's a correlation. They, they occur side by side that when Jack Grealish plays his third game, he tends to to have a massive haul, but there's no causation there. And um, I mean, Simon can touch on that himself, but it's a very, very interesting concept that correlation does not imply causation. 
it's really interesting how automatic uh, these these things can be. If I'm looking at a fancy football forum and I, I've got an idea in my head of what kind of player I want to bring in, you know, say I'm, I'm considering Harvey Barnes or, or whatever, um, my eyes will be automatically drawn to rate my teams with Harvey Barnes in it. And that'll make me feel better um, about picking him. Even if they're the minority, it will still make me feel better to know that somebody else is, is looking at, at it as well. And that, and that really is confirmation bias. But I mean, I... I even do it proactively. You know, sometimes I'll be thinking of, of uh, that player and I'll search for them on Twitter and I'll actually seek out people who are considering the same player. Again, that, that'll just be to make me feel better about, about my uh, decision. And, and yeah, it kind of goes okay. back a little bit to that, that outsourcing. Um, not, it's, it's not always just outsourcing the decision process. It's outsourcing the ramifications of it. You know, if it goes wrong, at least you know that other people have made the same mistake. Um, mm. And, you know, that that's a, a very sort of permissive sort of behavior. But yeah, with, with regards to uh, statistics, I mean, I probably shouldn't be saying this given how much we talk about them. But I, I honestly don't think that they're anywhere near as useful throughout the season as, as we make out football is. One of these sports where you don't have that sort of critical mass of data except for at the very beginning of the season where there are all sorts of other factors but you can still look back at the entire data set of the previous season or seasons or at the very end of the season between those two polls i don't think that the data that we see is very instructive at all i think a lot of the time we're looking at things like okay that that player scored last week so he's more likely to score this week and you know sometimes we even think the opposite we think that a player didn't score last week so he's more likely to score this week we're looking at very small pieces of data and we're extrapolating from those to, to try and find meaning and narratives uh, w- within it and you know a lot of the time we're not doing that just because we're not trained or, or skilled at using data we're, we're doing it because of necessity we don't have a ton of data like you would have in, in games like uh, baseball for example narrative bias creating a narrative does not exist i think that's definitely something which we see a lot and i think that feeds into what we were saying earlier on as well about you know a random differential coming out of left field suddenly becoming the you know the the course laborer on twitter right ross i mean those sort of things do come out and can completely sort of overtake a very kind of rational discussion and towards the end of this you know thinking about where we are in this sort of fictional game week 13 at this point in the week we are you know starting to kind of be brought along by these sort of bandwagons, aren't we? And you know, these narratives, which didn't previously exist, suddenly start to you know, permeate people's minds. And when you're thinking about where you're hovering your transfer, um, suddenly, you know, the Twitter groupthink option is up there with the one which was kind of the more rational, cold-minded pick that you're thinking up beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is the bit that we can give you all the advice and you can you can get advice on anyone. You can read the books, you can listen to the podcast, but this is the point where you need to make the decision yourself. And this is where it becomes difficult. And this is the point where the advice can only go so far. You need to consider the choices you made at the start of the week. You need to consider confirmation bias, belief bias, sunk cost fallacy, groupthink, herd mentality. You need to collate all of this information and make the decision. And at some point you will make mistakes and that's how you learn. And, and mistakes is part of FPL and I would be very surprised if you don't make mistakes. And if you think you don't make mistakes, again, you're probably suffering from bias blind spot. Indeed. I think this really nicely leads us on to what to believe. Do you trust your gut? Ross Dowsett said in his book, The Mind Game, since the dawn of man, emotions have been the primary tools used to aid and drive decision making. And later says he's a big advocate of trusting your gut feeling. I found myself agreeing with, uh, obviously, Ross is Ross, uh, with your conclusion, Ross, that gut works well as a deciding factor 
when your research comes out as 50-50. I like how you said, flip a coin if you aren't sure. We've all been in that situation before. But I mean, do you guys all agree with this in terms of gut? I mean, Simon, you said in the past to me, my gut actually isn't a fantasy or expert, so I'm not too sure about that. What's your view on gut? I think there's a very sort of romantic concept behind it. This idea of, you know, the, the true answer, the correct answer, you know, lies within ourselves. And it's just a case of, of sort of teasing it out. Despite the discussion that we just had, there are more objective things like statistics, for example, are, are always going to be more uh, objective. But I think that gut, even though I'm not a great believer in it, I do think that it gets a bit of a, a bad rap sometimes because I, I think that there are times or certain circumstances where going with your gut just cuts through a lot of the nonsense you know some of which we've described uh, you know some of the biases you're just cutting all that out and, and there are examples of, of this uh, yeah there are there are people that that really believe in this uh, as you know gut instinct uh, as a, a sort of heuristic or, or a shorthand for making complex decisions like um one example that i really like is um you'll read all these stories of uh, firemen you know really experienced veteran firemen putting their teams out of a burning building moments before it collapsed because they just knew whether they could verbalize it or explain it or not they just knew that it was going to collapse and that was their experience all coming together to influence what was really quite a, a subconscious decision a gut feeling and i think that you can have that in fpl but i think you have to be very realistic with yourself about it if you're a very experienced FPL manager, there, there is a good chance that you have seen a lot of scenarios that might actually beneficially influence your instincts. Your instincts will probably get better over time. But the counterpoint to that is, is that you can you know, trust yourself too much. And, and so I think you do need to sense check them. And, and the ideal will always be to say, OK, is there an objective reason for this? Is there objective data that can support this gut feeling. Yeah, I, I think um, it brings it back to you know, what, what Ross said about it being a bit of a deciding factor. Yeah, I, I don't think it should be used to drive a decision. So I, I don't think at the start of the week, you should say my gut feeling at the start of the week is to because then you're suffering with anchoring bias, plan continuation bias. I think you should do your research, use the eye test, use statistics. And when you arrive at that final decision, if there's not a clear favorite or a clear leader, I think that's the time when using your gut feeling can be very successful. I have presented the evidence in the book that it could be this synthesis of diverse experiences, gut feeling, and it could be something going on in our subconscious. It could be that we just recognize these things without processing them consciously. But I think the main reason that using your gut feeling is so successful is it just leads to greater enjoyment of the game. There's nothing worse than thinking I should have captained that player. My gut feeling was to captain that player, but I listened to the masses instead. I listened to the herd. Yeah. And there's two issues there. Number one, you'll be unhappy with yourself and you're not learning to trust yourself. And the second issue you'll have is that you'll start to resent the people in the community. And you don't want to resent the people that are making threads and helping you because they're trying to help you in the community. That's what, that's what we're trying to do. So you don't want to resent them because they're going against your gut feeling. So yeah, so the narrative with the book was trust it, don't trust it. But I personally think that it will lead to greater enjoyment of the game if in some occasions when there is a 50-50 call, you learn to, to trust your gut. This is interesting because something I found throughout my time as an FPL manager, first of all, and maybe then as an FPL content producer, I think I'm six or seven years or something on Twitter now doing it. So a fairly long amount of time to draw as well. Something I found is that when I do research on FPL, there's a point at the very start where my gut feel you know, drives me towards a decision and it tends to be quite good. Then there's a point where I do research. And if I do a bit of research, but not lots of research, I find that things go wrong. But once I've done an absolute ton of research and come out the other end of this inverse curve, my decision-making tends to come out well again. 
And so frequently I find that I end up agreeing with my gut feeling was originally at the very end of this like long tangential story. And, you know, in one way, I'm quite fortunate that I've been able to do that for a season on end because I've been producing like stuff like this, being a part of a, a co-host on a podcast. I've been writing articles and things. So I kind of have the uh, the chance and sometimes the monetary uh, spur to go on and actually do loads of research to you know actually get to that point. Sometimes I don't have the time and unfortunately then it, it tended to go poorly. And I've had quite a few seasons where it went poorly because I might have had that time to get to the end of that curve, you know, more game weeks than not. Uh, at the other end of this, though, I find it really interesting what Simon was saying, the idea that there is this romanticism to the use of the gut feeling that, you know, that the truth might be within ourselves and that that's maybe something that we can't hope for. But I guess what you're getting at, Ross, is that like it might not be the truth that's within us, but maybe there's some modicum of contentment in finding the answers within ourselves en route to finishing our FPL seasons. And there's a beauty in that. Kind of reminds me of Brian Clough turning around in that famous interview that he had after being sacked from Derby, saying that you know, he's not an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me, as he put it. <laughs> and you know, it's that idea kind of sums it up so nicely. And I think what that's what you're getting at when you say that it it makes it more enjoyable. Certainly, there's definitely, as you mentioned, a, an integrative approach, though. I mean, uh, there may be all these times where your gut has done well to begin with, but that perhaps is one of those things that you remember the good things rather than the bad things. And maybe this links into availability heuristic, my favorite um, heuristic slash bias, the fallacy of the gut, almost we could say. Uh, this is where your most salient or easily retrievable memories can play an outsized role in your perceptions. So if a player scores, you know, two goals in two games and you ask, okay, can you keep this up? Is he worth me buying in? Most people say, yeah, yeah, of course. Look at Jamie Vardy's streak from 1516. Um, you know, look at uh, J-Lings. Um, of course he could do that. Of course he's worth buying in. But quantitatively, and as Simon said in the last podcast um, that we did with him, this is total rubbish. Most of the time, there's no such thing as a continuing run of form. See also players who hit the ground running in FPL. We remember the likes of Michu and Mo Salah and take that as a reason to buy in the likes of Timo Werner in game week one because we expect a similar sort of initial bang from them. I'm back in my guy to the hilt. Actually, often availability heuristic is leading us astray. And the majority of successful approaches over the last kind of few years and the early game weeks, especially, have been to stick to the known quantities because they are fully adapted to the league. And um, this also happens in the transfer market. So the Yannick Vestergaard effect, I like to call it, is one of these kind of things that I bring up for availability. So whenever Yannick Vestergaard over the last two seasons has scored a goal, his price by two weeks has risen by 0.4 million or so. It happens. I don't know why. Because he's quite a big lad. I think that he'll get a JWP uh, corner. He'll nod one in. And suddenly, all of the less engaged managers will be buying this guy. It also happened a few years ago with the Stephen Ward phenomenon. He scored a goal and an assist in consecutive game weeks. And he rose from 4.5 million to 5.2 million within four weeks. He was a Burnley defender who offered nothing except clean sheets. But people were buying him in hand over fist. It's also linked to something called survivorship bias, which is a concentration on things which make it past criteria, such as do they keep scoring, uh, rather than look at the filters for people who fell by the wayside. And there's so many of them, aren't there, Simon? I mean, you definitely see it in FPL. You can more or less, uh, at the end of a game week, work out who is going to be the most bought-in players the following game week. And, and it will almost always be you know, the player that, that scored the most or, or the, um, the cheap player who you know, outperformed his price. Um, and yeah, th this is very much a, a availability heuristic or recall bias. It, it, it's the emphasis that we put on the most easily accessible piece of information, which 
obviously is going to be the most uh, recent game week, but it, it distorts our, our ability to uh, you know, rationally interpret data. So as you say, Tom, a player will fluke a goal and you know, it might be the only goal that he has ever scored in his professional career. And there'll be a surge of, uh, of ownership. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Ross, what's your view on availability? Um, Is it the fallacy of gut, as I positioned it? I think this is the thing we need to be really careful of. Perhaps I don't do enough as a big advocate of gut feeling is realising what the source of the gut feeling is. And I think that's very difficult to do. But I think often the source will be availability or saliency bias. I mean, there's so many different biases in this, this area. But if you can acknowledge that the source isn't just because it's a very available thing, which is so difficult, it's probably the most difficult bias to avoid or heuristic to avoid because heuristics are mental shortcuts. So that they're these quick things that you probably can't control. So you need to do some sort of post hoc evaluation after this bias has occurred. Can you spot it after you've engaged with the availability heuristic? Can you spot that that's the case? So yeah, I think this is one of the major drawbacks to gut feeling. And I think Tom's hit the nail on the head. Don't trust gut feeling without doing research alongside it. And I think this kind of links nicely into kind of the next point here. So imagining you're looking at your transfers, you know, you're looking at your captain and really often it comes down to one word, which is risk. Should I take the risk or should I play it safe? Am I risk averse or am I risk seeking to characterize some FPL managers that you all know and love? Players like I mentioned earlier, like Joe from Manchester Scout, Matthew Jones, famous for a tersal approach. You know, they value the impact of the possible downside above the upside so they're all looking to be very conservative small c and make sure they've got the key players the template players who form a threat and maybe you know their kind of punts and inverted commas are always going to be sort of small scale they're not going to be captioning outside the box they're not going to be buying in players they're esoteric small loans uh, versus players like late riser and maybe myself as well to some extent who are more risk-seeking players who always look on the bright side you're always thinking about what you can gain rather than what you can lose and ross this is definitely one of the things i mean there's a a huge questionnaire in your book isn't there about whether people can how people can characterize themselves in this way and we do this on the pod too with nick's favorite risk profiling podcast rather than conclude with this i think i'll caveat with it at the start as tom loves his caveats <laughs> um I, I think you need to play your own game and there is never gonna if someone tries to offer you an answer as to how risk averse or risk seeking you should be I would avoid that person and I would avoid trying to listen to them because you need to play your own game in certain scenarios you can advise with how many risks to take but both kind of techniques work. Joshua Ball, I think he maybe only took one or two hits across his season when he won FPL. And he said he, he often tried to avoid those shiny new toys and he would never take hits. And, and we know that late riser has had his two top 100 finishes. So you can be successful by taking risk and you can be successful by not taking risks. And I think what you need to do is you need to work out what suits your own personality, because the biggest issue you'll find is if there's an incongruence between the risk profile that you have in FPL and the risk profile that you have in your own life because you have some sort of cognitive dissonance where your own brain is telling you I shouldn't be taking a risk here but in FPL you're taking hits and taking loads of risks if you've got that incongruence between the two you'll start to slip up and you'll be taking risks at the wrong time you won't be timing those risks well you'll be taking too big of a risk and that's when you'll start to, to struggle throughout the season so I guess my, my major piece of advice here is to just to play to your own strengths and if you're a risk taker take risks and if not, try to be a bit, bit more risk averse. I think this definitely something that I've fallen prey to. I've been trying to be a risk averse character because that's the prevailing sort of narrative on Twitter, isn't it? To kind of follow the crowd, as we've said, that common knowledge effect. Whereas in fact, I'm probably a bit of a risk taker. And I say this every year. And you know, at, the end of, at the end of this year, I've done the same thing where I've kind of blatantly realized, oh, I better take some risks. And that's worked really well for me. So maybe that kind of works better. But kind of that kind of 
it's counteracted by the fact that at the start of the season, I've fallen prey to the same thing I always do. I'm like, oh, God, everyone's doing this. I, I better do it. All the things that we've already spoken about. Anthony? I find it quite interesting uh, reading Ross's book about how a lot of literature suggests that the peer pressure that comes with social situations pushes people towards risk-taking behaviours, um, which I guess actually contrasts with your experience, Tom. But that, you know, even the evidence that suggests that even just the presence of someone there can increase your desire to take risks. So just basically more people often you brings about more risk-taking. I guess I, we can all maybe think of this in maybe social situations that we've seen play out or whatever with people just doing barmy things that they'd never do if there was nobody around. And so it does make sense. But then there's something else maybe that I was thinking about. And it's just the, this idea that if you want to win FPL, and I think... You, I think there's something fundamentally unsexy about entering a season hoping to come in the top 10K. I think you should enter a season hoping to win the bloody thing. And, you know, if you end up in the top 10K or worse along the way, then, you know, that's that's the way the game is. And there is an inevitability to, if you want to win, you have to take risks. And risks are just deviating from others in some way. And so maybe in contrast to what's happened with you, Tom, where you've ended up, you know, putting your risks all at the end when you're trying to play catch up and it's all gone tits up. Really, if you want to win, you need to front load your risks. But there's something much, much harder psychologically about front loading risk, because then you have that risk of ruining your whole entire season by going off on your own solo run, plowing your own furrow early on. And I was, I was interested to hear you guys maybe like take that apart psychologically a little bit for me, that, okay, really, risk seeking is the way to deliver victory in the early time in the season. And yet at the same time, anyone's risk aversion would tell you that that's the time that you definitely don't want to fall behind because it, there's a whole season left to go. It's a marathon, not a sprint, all the other cliches. Yeah. Pick this apart for me. It's really interesting because there is a, a sort of tenor within uh, game theory that, that says that if you, uh, if you are going to take a risk, then it's best to do it early um, because if it you know, goes tits up, then you've got the, you know, the rest of the time to, uh, to, you know, to redeem it. Um, and if it goes brilliantly, then you're giving yourself an advantage. So, um, yeah, I think I think there is there is a time and a place for for risk taking. Literally, you know, there's a, a time. I, I think that if you are going to take risks, maybe it's less damaging to do it at the uh, early part of the season. But when you get to the end of the season, if you're in you know second place in your mini league or you know the whole thing, then yeah, absolutely take some risks. But I don't think that you necessarily, even though we kind of categorize ourselves into dullards and mavericks, um, I don't think you necessarily have to be one or, or the other. I think that what would be sensible is is to to look at risk and risks realistically. I see a lot of the time you know, people will describe a move as you know, high risk, high reward, as if they're the same thing. Whereas you know, the reality is that the higher the risk, the less likely the reward. And so you, know, you do have to bear that in mind. You can't just look at it and sort of say, okay, well, if this pays off, then you know, it's, it's really going to work uh, for me. You do have to take into account the possibility that it, that it might not and where that will uh, leave you. Take informed risks, in other words. Being informed would tell you that taking the risks early is the right way to do it. You know, um, even the fact that we kind of see statistically that the top 10K has, has really settled itself by about game week 10, game week 8, isn't it? That for the most part, nobody really falls in or falls out. Like it's Hotel California from then on, you know, you can, you can check in, but you can never leave or whatever. Like that's that's pretty much what starts to happen at that one. Maybe it is your, your game week one team or that early wildcard in game week three to just react to whatever it is that you feel is the requirement to do is, is nearly the way forward with risk rather than trying to play catch up at the end. It's quite interesting to me. 
I guess just to round off this section, I like to try and remind myself that we shouldn't be thinking in binary terms. And I think that's what Simon was getting at. As as individuals, we like to think yes or no, risk-taking, risk-averse, confirmation bias, no confirmation bias. And everything in life and in, in psychology in particular, or most things, tends to be on a spectrum of some kind. And this has started to come into play a lot in clinical psychology with autism spectrum disorder. And we started to realize that people aren't one thing or another. It's not black or white. There is a gray area in between. But I think that is definitely something that we, we need to consider throughout. This is that you're, you're not going to be one thing or another. There's not a yes or a no. So definitely try and find what suits you, but don't think that you have to be one or the other. Definitely a scope to start singing some Michael Jackson there, um, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to uh, destroy the sanctity of this really, really good podcast by doing so. But yeah, a really interesting section there, guys. And I think that there's uh, quite a few things to bear in mind, as we've said about framing to begin with. I think that's my big takeaway from all observations of FPL Twitter, just to bear in mind how people come at things and how people are presenting data and um, but some really interesting stuff about how you present yourself as a risk taker or not and how the gut can either be a good or a bad thing and how these things can influence the decisions we make at this point of game week 13 we are at the point where we've made our decisions and we are about to hit the deadline it's you've uh, locked your team and you're ready to go and back after this small break to come into the last kind of couple of sessions which is in play and also post talk after the game week who got the assist who got the assist so uh we're back and i guess at this point you know to set the scene again it's game week 13 and we're in play the deadline's gone pens down and we're strapped in for another game week this game week 13, there's been lots of decisions to be made. There's lots of you know, podcasts, articles and things to digest. But it's all over now and we need to see how it plays out. Um, the first section here is looking at in play and it'll be quite brief. But there's definitely a few things that can wash over managers cognitively as this kind of enjoyable start of the week where hope lives before it goes to die when the actual results come in. Um, it can happen. Um, Behaviours we see mostly a virtually um as we've mentioned a few times you know social media is a bit of a you know, petri dish of how all these things sort of come together be it on the twitter timeline or in those group chats but i think one of the big things actually that i see is anticipated regret um in how people talk about what happens especially before things kick off but after the line has hit there's a man called marcel zielenberg at tilburg university in the netherlands who is literally the regret king academically um he for some reason has you know, staked his entire career on looking at regret the emotion of regret and he characterizes regret as a counterfactual emotion he says that regret is a rather complex emotional experience and that it both stems from and produces higher order cognitive processes freedom regret requires the ability to imagine other possibilities in the current state of the world one has to reflect on one's choices and the outcomes generated by those choices. But one also has to reflect on what other outcomes might be obtained by making a different choice. So there's so many things there which definitely sort of you know, take us out of the present and into the future and projecting onto that future. And what this means in terms of fantasy football management, when the deadline has gone or just before you know, a, a game starts, we see, oh, I should have bought X, he's starting now. Oh, why didn't I captain Y? You know, the, the opposition looks like they're tailor-made for his sort of game. And I think it's fascinating to see how you know, this future-gazing psychological foible really manifests itself. You know, the event hasn't happened yet, but we're transposing a result and projecting what we think our emotions will be 
onto the future, a really fascinating sort of meta one. Um, and I think, you know, Ross, we, we definitely see this, don't we? And the initial reactions to lineups um, and you know, the big game of that game week, we definitely see people kind of uh, minimising perhaps what's going to happen in the future or indeed kind of trying to kind of give themselves a sense of comfort about a potential result which could occur. And anticipated regret, I think, definitely plays a huge part in the in-play element of a game week. Yeah, absolutely. And that that 90 minutes following the deadline can be still used to be an hour, but that 90 minutes following the deadline before that first game can be a long 90 minutes as you're scrolling through Twitter, that idea of regret and seeing everyone else's teams and you're looking for that confirmation bias. Has anyone else brought in the same player that I have? Is anyone else captaining that differential? And that regret starts flooding in, in in that kind of, I suppose, before in play, but after you've made your decisions, that initial initial stage of the game week. And I guess I'd like to bring in here the idea of illusion of control because it's helped me a lot with my, I wouldn't say issues, but I, I do struggle to switch off once the game week starts and, and I'm constantly checking my team and I'm constantly checking live FPL and I want to know what my rank is and I want to know if I've captained that player with the what if function on live FPL net now. And I'm always interested in these things. But what we do need to realise is we don't have control over the outcome. As soon as you've entered your team, that is it. You've got your score. You can't do anything once you've entered your team. The players need to perform for you. So this idea of illusion of control is the idea that we don't actually, we think we have control over an event we don't have control over. And that is the case with FPL. And I used to do the same during my, my bachelor's. I used to try and think, right, I've put my pen down in the exam hall. I've finished my exam. That's it. I've got my grade. I know it hasn't been marked yet, but I can't do anything else after I've written that exam. And it's the same in FPL. And I think that comes in with the regret I did. Try not to regret it. Try not to have this anticipated regret. Realize that you can't control anything after you've you've submitted your team. And, and there's nothing you can do after that fact. Yeah, I think we've spoken a lot on this podcast in the past uh, when it came to, you know, the old trope of luck versus skill. A lot of FPL is putting yourself in a position to get lucky. So you've done all the right research, you've gone through all the proper processes, as it were. Um, and at the end of the day, it's just, will it be all right on the night or will it be all right during the game week? I mean, uh, Simon, is this something that impacts you as an FPL manager? Oh, yeah, de- definitely. In fact, I mean, I'm interested to hear that people actually start a game week and don't feel regret um it, it feels to me like it's it's just a kind of standard uh, but i i can really relate to a lot of this uh, myself as you know some somebody that has quite severe obsessive compulsive disorder i definitely find myself doing that that kind of magical thinking um things that, that i can somehow you know, influence what's going to happen uh, in the in the game week and that that's really kind of affected me quite a lot and my enjoyment of uh, of the game um i think you know for the way that i look at it you know i, I look at it i actually use fpl as a, as a way of sort of challenging that of, of not you know doing the sort of weird you know ritualistic kind of things that the ocd sufferers tend to tend to do but what i think you ultimately want to get to is a point where you've made a decision and it's a decision you know that you can live with that you can justify to yourself whatever the outcome is and that's very much a a case of you know we talk about outcome bias uh, sometimes the the tendency to to judge something based on the on the outcome but if you can judge something based on the uh the logic that went into making the decision then you know that that's a, a far easier to cope with and you know makes you much more accountable i think for your own actions which is something that will benefit you uh, in the future just quickly one one thing that i'd really recommend is not looking at your rivals teams 
uh, until you know the game week is finished at best um, because it will just wreck your game week um, <laughs> because whatever you've done you, you can see your players and they mm. might score and you know you can feel really good about that and you'll get all the enjoyment that you might typically get from that but all it will take is for their differential to uh, to do well uh, as well and that just completely undermines uh, everything uh, that you experience and and ultimately at the end of the day even though you know we take it more seriously than than perhaps most people do it is a game it's supposed to be fun and uh, you know sometimes I, I think you have to kind of manage uh, that and uh, and you know manage the anticipated regret uh, that you might have and maybe kind of um, insulate yourself from it a bit so as part of managing anticipated regret, Simon, do you now try to ignore EO as well? Because that's definitely something that has become more and more pervasive in the last two seasons. And now we're starting to see, you know, the amount of damage against you, how a, you know, a player getting a point will do to your rank and all this sort of thing. Do, do you just avoid all of those tools completely? Well, no, I, I'm, I'm absolutely addicted to uh, oh, no. you know, <laughs> some of them. I, I'm the same as, as uh, yeah, anybody um, that that comes across them, and um, it's it's a really weird one because it's great when your players scored and you can go on on there and and you can look at the impact that it's had on your rank. And, yeah, you, know, you can you can literally count the change as yeah, it's coming in. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's worth it on that level, but yeah, I'm sure that there are negatives. It's, it's something that that um you, you know that I, I would like to maybe write an article about or something and and say you know does it change the way that we play it? Does it change the way that we uh, we assess things? But occasionally I'll do the match of a day challenge, which if you know, people, uh, listeners haven't heard of it, is the idea of you avoid hearing anything about any of the uh, the matches um, and uh, just watch match of the day in the evening. Um, and then you, you get the, you know, the triumph and despair all in you know, one quick dose. I, I actually find I really enjoy that. I, I really enjoy it sometimes when I'm, I'm just out and I, I can't, you know, you know, look at my phone or, or whatever, uh, for whatever reason, I can't follow the, the football. I'm at a wedding or something like that. <laughs> I actually really enjoy it uh, when, you know, you can just kind of check it all in one go, uh, you know, later on. Um, and if it's, if it's good news, then, you know, it's still good news. If it's bad news, then, you know, at least you only have to experience it once rather than <laughs> it be drip fed to you across the entire day or weekend. Yeah, and, it was, and this this season has been like you know the the hose has been slightly broken and the dripping has been you know even more incremental than usual with the way the game weeks were drawn out because of COVID, which made that that little bit worse. And a match of the day challenge, a like you know ten day process, or when that's an exaggeration, yeah. you know, a five day process. <laughs> yeah, I remember, true. I remember when I was in Australia, it was great because I used to you know wake up in the morning and you could see all the outcomes because I was asleep. When the games were going on and it was just fantastic because as you said there was no sort of you know staging post throughout the week where oh this is great you know i'm doing really well oh no actually the high end player i don't own has absolutely smashed it and now my rank is is, is through the floor i mean it, it was really really useful from that regard to kind of do that and um, i was just remembering kind of what we said about illusion of control effective ownership and illusion of control do you think that people kind of making their decisions transfer wise based on ownership or the forecast of that kind of effective ownership kind of helps them to retain this illusion of control so they think you know what i've at least kind of made steps and negate the downside of what could have happened and i'm you know even though i can't control what happens i've still got the players to try to make sure that you know i've got some element of grasp over the outcome that i get from this game week 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of the illusion of control theory and, and cohort of literature suggests that we do try and take control where we can. It's not only that we have this illusion that we have control, but when we can find a nugget of information or a piece of our week or life where we can take control, we will take control of that. And, uh, and that's where it becomes obsessive, the things that we can control, which is that prior part of the research or looking at EO. That's why we start to obsess over these things, because these are the things we feel like we can control. But ultimately, using EO can be helpful to try and counter certain things. But again, it's not going to affect much. The, the real thing you should be choosing is which players you think are going to perform. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, before we move on to post hoc, I think there's one bit of the in-play, which is pervasive on social media and pervasive amongst you know, all the WhatsApp groups you'll all be in uh, for fancy football. Hindsight bias. Everyone be familiar with this. I knew it. Creeping determinism. And it basically cuts through the uncertainty and it basically means that people act like events were far more predictable than they actually were. Like we're all very guilty of this one time or another, you know, kind of just, you know, positively saying oh i knew this guy's gonna perform i brought him in and you know i'm now uh, reveling in the fact that i've got those points when in fact you know he's just bummed a chance in and he's got a house assist from you know the 45 yards out he's passed it to someone who's got an amazing solo dribble and scored and you've got a golden assist hey presto it goes a bunch negatively too so you can say oh yeah i knew that my captain was going to blank and you know it's a bit it's, it's comforting isn't it you know the motivation you know it, it's very comforting to think oh well it was inevitable uh, that he'd bang as an captain him or own him or whatever and this interestingly has actually been proven um to be true um so dietrich and Olson in 1993 asked college students in the US, it always seems to be college students in the US, um, which is a whole different thing. But anyway, um, they asked them to predict how likely the US Senate would confirm a Supreme Court judge called Clarence Thomas. Before his confirmation, only 58% of students predicted that he would be confirmed to go in. They then repeated this experiment afterwards. And afterwards, uh, 78% of students said that he'd be confirmed uh, to go in uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, so it just kind of shows how hindsight can change, alter, and make people think uh, that events are far more predictable, as I said, uh, than they actually were. And Ross, we see this all the time, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd, I'd just like to say that trusting your gut here will help reduce hindsight bias, because a part of hindsight bias is is the idea that we, we look back and we said, ah, oh, I knew that would happen or I knew I shouldn't have done that. That's why it's also termed the knew it all along effect is sort of like the colloquial term for it. And if we trust our gut feeling in those 50-50s, we're less likely to say, oh, I knew it would go that way because we're trusting it. And if we knew it, then we would have gone for that decision. So that's an, another nice benefit of, of trusting your gut in those 50-50 calls. And it's less likely, you're less likely to activate hindsight bias and outcome bias. So let's move on to the final part of this then. The game week is now over. Yep, our game week 13 has come to a close. However you did, you're probably picking over the wreckage of it. You're looking at what went right or went wrong. And before the cycle starts all over again, you know, you start listening to podcasts again, you start reading reports and you start doing whatever you do in the early stages. It's worth going over the psychological impacts that the aftermath of a game week can have on you as a manager. How can I tell how well I've done. Uh, Simon mentioned this earlier, outcome bias is a massive impact on so many people's perspective on how they did during a game week. We did this on the podcast back in the project restart sort of time. Outcome bias of resulting in poker is simply put the tendency to evaluate the quality of a decision based on the outcome rather than the thought process. 
people who succeed are assumed to have made best decisions than those who have failed. Um, in life, as an FPL, this means that people have made the right decision, easy to be cautious, not risk it, as that was the majority of the time, uh, but failed or punished more than those who took irresponsible risks that happen to work out. Um, easy, you know, capturing a mad pick that pays off. There's a UPenn experiment on this, uh, which uses a legal case to ask subjects whether the city, a random city in America, of course, um, should have done certain preventive actions like flood risks. Uh, when exposed to the evidence the city had at the time, 24% of the people said that they should have taken the action to you know, mitigate against floods. But when exposed to the outcome, the action was supposed to prevent, this rose to 56% of people. So more people after the fact there was a flood said, you know what, these guys should have probably you know, prevented against a flood. Shocking, right? And I think we've, we've kind of touched on this a few times. But the sh- governing principle for me, it's peace of mind when it comes to outcome assessment. Obviously, there is in kind of the, the cadence of FPL, a right and a wrong, because the points are the points and your rank is your rank. But I guess psychologically, in terms of feeling comfort of how things have gone, you can always kind of pull yourself apart when you ask yourself, was it the right decision? Because yes or no, it becomes very, very blunt, doesn't it? I think actually to make yourself kind of feel better or at least kind of help you kind of continue on with the season or at least be able to have that kind of resilience to kind of think you know what I've had a bad game but I'll continue on the better question rather than was it the right decision to ask yourself is probably am I happy with the decision I've made it's an attempt to put maybe structure on the randomness remembering again clustering illusion hindsight bias but I think that you know outcome bias is definitely one of those things which pervades a lot of kind of post hoc analysis of what happened in the game week and actually you, know, you can loll at somebody who's done something which hasn't paid off. But if it was an outlandish punt, then fair enough. But if it was something which did have kind of a backing to it, you went for everything, either there's gut feeling which kind of pushed them there and or there were kind of underlying objective reasons to do a thing. It's important to, I think, Simons, to look at outcome bias and kind of think how that kind of outcome actually isn't a bad thing in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of this is is really making yourself feel better about the decision that, that you've made. But there is a, a really sort of practical element to it in, in that if you assess all your decisions uh, based on outcomes, then that is going to start to influence how you make decisions in the future. And if that outcome was not objectively realistic and you spend you know your next game weeks trying to you know, somehow uh, you know, capture that or predict this thing happening again, it's much more likely that you're going to miss uh, every time. Um, And so I think it really benefits you to be able to look at your decisions and and say, all right, have I reached this conclusion? Even if it uh, turned out to be wrong, have I reached this decision in a a logical uh, way? And if I have, you know, was I just unfortunate or was there a a flaw in my, uh, in my methodology, in my process and looking at it in, you know, through that lens, means that it actually becomes a beneficial process or something that actually enhances your ability and makes you a better manager over time you know it takes that disappointment and actually repurposes it and says okay well I've learned something uh, from this in in terms of a a quick exercise that, that you can do is to sort of say okay if you look at the outcome what would you have had to have done to have predicted this outcome. And that can be quite a useful process in, in, in terms of both 
one making yourself feel better about something because there's a good chance that you know via this exercise you'll find out that you couldn't have predicted this outcome or not reasonably and uh, secondly it, it will allow you to look at your own process and your own methodology uh, in a more critical way and yeah as i say this is a a way of of improving your ability as a uh, as a decision making fpl manager yeah, so just to build on what Simon said, I, I think one of the main things is there's going to be a, a high amount of variance in the outcome. And I, I think that's a very big thing is one week you'll make exactly the same decision and it'll have a very, very different outcome to the next week. So with the amount of variance there are in outcomes, I think it's very difficult to try and work out what you've done well and what you haven't. So last season, I sold Luke Shaw and Bruno Fernandes before Man United played against Liverpool. And I know Bruno got a 10-pointer and Shaw got a 15-pointer. Man United were about to go on a very, very difficult run. We, we, did, we didn't look like we were going to perform very well against Liverpool. That was the right decision to make. Luke Shaw was very unlikely to keep a clean sheet and score a goal. I was happy with my decision and I, I was at peace with it because the decision-making process was correct. Obviously, it angered me slightly that I just lost 25 points, but trying to focus on the decision-making process, as Simon said, and not on the outcome is the key thing here. And you will be more at peace with your decisions if you do that. 25 points, wow. Oh, yeah, it's, it's always good to have that sort of level of comfort, at least some psychological angle, if you had that sort of yeah massive variance in the outcome. Interesting one there, Ross, you discussed variance. That, that's something that's come up in the other Summer Specialist pod, which looks at more quantitative uh, aspects and statistical aspects of FPL. And maybe ties in with the broader point around kind of this whole entire area of outcome bias. And I ask myself, and I, I'm throwing this question to any of the three of you, really. At what point does analysing decision-making and maybe ignoring the outcome, and in this sense, probably pointing to variance, intrude on logic? Like, for example, last season, Kevin De Bruyne continued to get good chances. He continued to register good shots in the box stats. Um, his XG was quite good, too. But there came a point, and I don't know where that point was, and I guess that's what the crux of this question is. There came a point where it was more logical to sell him in spite of his statistical outcomes because the outcome wasn't good enough in FPL points in spite of everything. And how do we identify that? And I know, Simon, you gave an interesting um, way of deciphering how we could have went about predicting what went on and what drove, you know, in this case, what drove you mad about you know your outcomes in FPL, but not necessarily your decision-making. But how can we try to identify that point where outcomes intrude on logic to a point that we're going wrong from an FPL perspective. What I would say with respect to this is is that nobody is capable of being entirely rigidly logical. You know, the whole premise of everything that we've been talking about, the biases and and, and everything uh, comes from that flaw in us as, uh, as human beings. But equally, that is the discipline that we're talking about, that it, it won't always be easy and it won't always necessarily produce the right outcome. You know, sometimes the logical decision you know, won't be the most beneficial one, but that's sort of something that you kind of have to accept in the belief that over a long enough period of time, you will come out on top. Yeah, I, I think that is probably the crux of it, because I, I guess I knew in asking my question when I was asking you, like, where would a crystal ball uh, owner, you know, succeed um, ahead? You know, it's like it's, it is an impossible question. So I, I kind of I fully understand that. And it's I guess maybe this chimes in with what Tom had said, that you know, it is quite easy to just laugh at people pointing to variants sometimes, you know, who are kind of clung to a belief based on statistics or based on hunches or based on whatever other bias that might come into things. But I, I guess it shows you the. Uh, the risk the chance the probability nature of fpl that at the end of the day we really don't know what's going to happen next and you know things occur 
and that is football and I guess that's why we like the sport at the end of the day too absolutely and I think that level of outcome as well can lead to an open question about how we deal with bad game weeks and um, I'm going to pass to you here Ross because you've had a couple of sort of uh, really good tips on coping or kind of self-distancing from the outcomes especially when they're bad ones and the good ones you know you 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 kind of float on okay and um, but I think and if it's a bad game week it can be quite difficult to kind of get to the point where you dust yourself off and sort of uh, continue on right absolutely I think this is a really important point because the point of FPL is to enjoy it and we, we can talk about all of these cognitive biases and and if you fall victim to this bias and this fallacy and if you fall victim to groupthink but if you're enjoying FPL and you regularly suffer from groupthink herd mentality confirmation bias but you're enjoying yourself doesn't matter if, if you're happy with doing what you want to do then that's the most important thing so one of the main things that I always try to tackle and I always am happy to discuss on Twitter is how can we increase our enjoyment of the game or probably more importantly, how can we reduce the negativity associated with the game? Because it is an inherently enjoyable game. We shouldn't have to increase the enjoyment aspect. We love football. We love moving little shirts around the pitch. We should inherently enjoy it. So it's how do we sort of mitigate the negative impact of FPL? So mm. I guess the first thing to consider is why do we experience negative emotions and negative feelings? And the main thing is because it's so immediate and so present, we're so enveloped by the game week that we're in, or we're sitting there on a Saturday, we're scrolling through Twitter, we're watching football. We've been spending four hours a day all week sort of drafting our teams and making our decisions. It becomes part of our world and part of our, our daily thoughts. And we're so enveloped in that, in that here and now, in the emotion, in the immediate situation, that it can be very, very difficult to detach ourselves from that. So it's very intense. So the, the key method for, for dealing with the negative emotions is to try and detach yourself, to try and distance yourself. And that's where we get self-distancing, not to be mistaken with social distancing. So self-distancing, yeah, you detach yourself from the current situation. It's also called psychological distancing. Sometimes you'll see in the literature. Essentially, you're mentally separating yourself from the immediate situation and you're trying to see the bigger picture. So you can imagine physically you're trying to pick yourself up, take yourself out of that bubble that you're in and then put yourself somewhere else and imagine what it would be like in the future. So by detaching ourselves from the current situation and by psychologically distancing ourselves, we're basically trying to make our reasoning improve. So we're trying to mm. reason more with the emotions that we're experiencing during the game week. So the best way to do this is to have a series of statements. So I have a few of these on my phone. I'll admit I, don't, I struggle with this. So I, I regularly try and use my own oh, advice. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have a list of statements on my phone and, and it will say things such as it will use game week 13 in one year time. Will I be worrying about my captaincy fail in game week 13? Right? And the answer should be no. It, it might be in one year time. You might be worrying about game week 13. But it's unlikely. If that doesn't work, you can then extend that in five years time. Will I be caring about my 2021 season in FPL? No, you won't be. You probably won't even be caring about an FPL in five years. You might be. But you can start to see if you try and detach yourself from the situation and consider the bigger picture and the future picture, you can start to realize that FPL isn't everything. And it's not this intense, immense game that has to worry us at every turn. And I think this is useful because whilst the crux of this is it's just a game, if you're someone that suffers with negative emotions during the game week, the worst thing that someone can say to you is, oh, don't stress, it's just a game. That can really hurt because for us, it's not just a game. And obviously, if that worked by saying it's just a game, then we wouldn't be experiencing these emotions. So it's not just a game. It's a very important part of our lives. But what we can do is try and detach ourselves from that and consider the, the bigger picture in the future. Yeah, I'm still thinking about decisions I made in uh, back in 2008. So uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, the, <laughs> the time when I finally get over those. But I, I think, yeah, speaking of social distancing, 
distancing yourself from social I think is a really sensible idea if you've had a bad game week because you will constantly see people who've had a great game week and because it's self-selecting I mean people tend to only talk about uh, their scores when they've been uh, good you you get a a sort of survivorship bias bias or a selection bias it will give the impression that everybody else did really, really well and you did really, really badly. And, and it's really unlikely to be uh, the truth. So sometimes I think the best thing to do is to just stay off forums, stay off social media, you know, let it sink in a little bit. And, you know, in a couple of days, you probably will feel fine and you'll, you'll be thinking about the next game week anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the one more thing um, just to bear in mind before we round off is future projection bias, um, which is a behavioural science trope that you can't project how you're feeling now onto a time in the future which i think oddly actually gives you hope it's a sense of myopia like you're always able to shift and change emotions as a human being which means the disappointment of a bad game week can give way to hope that the next one will be better or the sheen of a good game week can be tempered into a steely determination that this will continue and you won't always be able to forecast how you feel but you know you're going to feel differently i think taking this kind of in general we know innately their emotion chains throughout time but we're unable to truly feel according to future projection bias how we are going to feel in the future it just doesn't happen you know I, I can't imagine feeling happy when i'm sad i can't imagine feeling excited when i'm you know, feeling a bit mere about things it's very hard to put yourself in the shoes of you in the future but building on that knowing that in the future your mindset will shift and you will be excited again, despite at the time feeling a bit upset, is something that I think everyone should take to drive you forward. It's been a fascinating chat, and I think it's probably nigh time to um, just summarise, I guess, maybe what we've learned from this chat. I know it's obviously a bit of a tall order for us all to do, but I'd like us to anyway, just the sort of things that you know, we're taking away from this um, and that perhaps could, you know, to project outwards, could help managers throughout the next season, or indeed, Whenever you listen to this for the season that you're playing in, Simon, let's go with you first. I mean, what sort of things uh, do you think from talking about the impacts of you know, psychology and behavioral science or whatever, however you want to put it, in FPL, um, have you taken from this? One of the major impacts, I think, is how much how you feel about things or, or how you make decisions is, is reflected in, in other people. Even though we might have very different approaches to this game, there are certain commonalities between the way we approach it, the way it affects us. And I, I think that there's something actually quite comforting about that, even though it's important to manage your biases and sense check your decisions. Ultimately, you do have to own your own decisions. If it's going to be fun at all, it, it has to be a reflection of your own identity, of your own personality. And really, that is what makes it interesting rather than, you know, this idea that we could all be sort of automatons, all making perfect decisions all the time. In this sense, actually, if you were to internalize all of the advice that you've heard in this pod, it would be asking you to stay dynamic and open, do all of your own research really as much as you can. Or certainly if you read some research to try and get an alternative aspect to that, to try and read more into things. And, and, and once you've come to a decision, question yourself, why did you come to that decision? And so in so many ways, psychology has a role to play in FPL, more so than just in our individual decision making, but in how we go about everything to do with FPL beyond just your transfer and your captain in a given week. I, I think all of those are good points. And I think I would reiterate that it's very important to try and reflect introspectively and, and always try and 
adapt and be dynamic and, and realize that we all have room to improve. Even if you are an expert at something, you can always learn more. And I think being open-minded is something that I would encourage to everyone in every aspect of life. Never be closed-minded, never think you can you stop learning. So that's important. But I suppose my number one would always be to enjoy the game. Be active and persistent in your pursuit of trying to find ways to enjoy the game. If it's doing the match of the day challenge, if it's looking at psychology, if, if trying to work out how your biases affect you, if you really enjoy that, which I do, then do that. If you enjoy stats, use stats. If you enjoy only the mini league aspect, try not to look at your overall rank. Find the thing that will improve the way that you perceive the game. And like I said, be persistent, be determined. Don't just accept the game. Don't accept the fact that you're not enjoying it. Oh, it's part of FPL. If I have a bad game week, I'm not going to enjoy it. Don't accept that. You should be enjoying this game. It is a game at the end of the day. So yeah, my main tip and, and something which has come up again during this podcast is just enjoy yourself wherever you can. Absolutely. I think in summary, do we even have one? I think that everybody will take their own takeaway from this, be it you know something that we've said something which chimes with you, um, a certain sort of foible of, that we've documented and identified that you think, oh, actually, there's a whole realm of cognitive biases that can impact you as an FPL manager. As Anthony inferred, you know, are we the econs for saying you know, all of these things all exist out there, so you need to you know, be good in terms of dodging these? No, no. Often we can't find time due to life uh, to make a pristine dodge of all of these sort of biases and heuristics out there despite us detailing what these all are. Adapt and be dynamic, as Ross says. But I guess the point in doing this pod overall was to both provide you with an interesting and hopefully simulated conversation surrounding these and just help ladder up understanding so you're more aware, observing bias blinds, of course, of the behaviours and thought processes you may go through during your FPL season. I think that rounds our discussion very, very nicely. Um, I want to thank our guests who are absolutely brilliant. First is Ross at FPL underscore, underscore Raptor. Um, his book, The Mind Game, is out now. Highly recommended. We've all read it and we absolutely loved it. Thanks for coming on, Ross. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, Tom and Anthony and also Simon. It's been a pleasure. Um, like I said, I've been reading Simon's and, and your own articles in the past on the psychology and it's great to get into a call and, and all discuss it and um, we all love it as much as each other. So it's it's been enjoyable. I, I'd, I'd do this not even on a podcast. I'd love to just have a bit <laughs> you and just sit, sit and chat psychology. So it's been great. It's been a bit of a privilege to do it. And obviously, uh, Simon, uh, at March Simon on Twitter, preferred appearance now, of course, but every time it's been the same as uh, Ross has described. It's, it's just great to talk about it, isn't it? And uh, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts on this. Thanks for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, good luck with the book, Ross. Thanks very much to both of you guys for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure to discuss it. And I guess coming from the perspective of more of a layman, I, I thought it was really enlightening, number one, to read Ross's book in the process of reading um, ahead of this podcast and then actually discussing with you guys and trying to put meat on the bones of the different ideas. It was uh, really, really interesting. And I hope that other lay people and experts alike who are listening to this really, really enjoyed uh, listening to this pod. And with that, thanks so much for listening. This was Who Got the Assist. You've been listening to a summer special podcast that was recorded during the summer prior to the 2021-2022 season. So if you've enjoyed this, I would recommend you to listen to us during the regular season too for slightly different but uh, equally informative content. Uh, don't forget to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. One other thing, the FPL London Summer Meetup, 24-7, 24th of July, Saturday. All guidelines permitting, it looks like it will be a normal event. 
So make sure uh, you get yourself down there. It's the Editor's Tap, Professor Lane, London. And um, if you can make it, do. Um, we'll be there for 3 p.m. onwards, which will be a really amazing event. We're doing that with Planet FPL and also the guys from Surgery. And we cannot wait for the day. So definitely try to come along to that if you can. Really, really looking forward to it. This was the Behavioural Science and FPL pod. Next week, it's fandom and FPL and data analytics and FPL is to come. We hope we assist you and uh, we'll speak to you very, very soon. Goodbye. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Sports Social Podcast Network.